there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Let's kick it off nerd style for 1983. January 1st, the start of the year, a decision is made that affects us on a daily basis now and is part of the reason you're able to listen to this podcast as TCP IP protocols are declared the only approved protocol on the ARPANET. Also, the A-Team premiered on NBC. Uh, Gary Trudeau announced he'd be taking an extended break from his celebrated comic strip Doonesbury. And finally, Nazi war criminal Klaus Barbie was discovered and arrested in Bolivia, and sadly Magneto was not there to fuck him up. What a way to kick off another year as we begin here today with January of 1983, and I am joined as always by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, buddy? Thanks, Walter Cronkite, for that insightful news recap. (laughs) My name is Scott Weinberg. I am the co-host and co-creator of 80s all over. Uh, Before we begin the worst movie year of my entire life, I would like to, and Drew would like to send a thanks to a gentleman uh, on the Twitter known as Sam Looks Great, all one word. And you can thank him for compiling a, a great, little highlight video on youtube if you want to pause the uh pause uh oh here we go if you want to pause the podcast before we kick in go to youtube do 80s all over just search for 80s all over i'm pretty sure it's literally the only video for us and uh, it's just a highlight collection of stuff from 80 81 and 82 i had to laugh really hard i was out with uh i was out with my girlfriend and we were running errands and uh i was sitting in the car she came out and i had my phone on and i played the video and midway through, I stopped because I was laughing so hard, and I said, "I am so I owe Bert Young so many fucking apologies." Like no doubt, in, until we had, until I actually heard all of the dunks in a row, yeah. I, I had not felt bad. Bert Young is in this movie, and I joked that he's basically a human skid mark. <laughs> in real life, I'm sure Bert Young was very clean and sweet. Bert Young looks like a boiled sloth in this film. He looked like someone dropped a meatball in an ashtray. Oh yeah, yeah. We no no disrespect, but the guy looked like a sweaty trash collector, and there's nothing by all. He looked like Gene Shalit's balls. Burt Young always looks like he smells like ham, wet ham. Burt Young looks like he's going for the world record sweating record. Burt Young looks like he hasn't slept since 1953. Burt Young looks like a fairy turned a mushroom into a man. (laughs) Now, now maybe I feel bad. (laughs) <laughs> I did correct it on a subsequent episode. I'd like to also note again that Burt Young is still with us. I said was, uh, and it made it sound like he was the late Burt Young, but thankfully he is still with us, so I apologize for that. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, that's going to be a great bonus episode when we finally get him on and apologize for an hour. Um. Uh, you know what? Here's the thing. I- I'm pretty sure Burt Young has a mirror, dude. <laughs> Well, listen, uh, this brings us to a larger thing. I don't know if you guys heard the latest Patreon episode, a fan appreciation episode or listener appreciation episode that we put up, but I'm really happy with the way it came out. And part of the reason we wanted to do that is because you guys really are the beating heart of what makes 80s all over work. Your Patreon support and then your online support have been immeasurably valuable to us. Please, every time you rate or review the show on iTunes, it helps. Every time you tell somebody about it, it helps. A video like that that the guy cut, that's enormously helpful because somebody else can point at it and and say, this is what I listen to. And it really means a lot to us that you guys take the time and that you guys give us the feedback you do. As you know, we're both big fans of How Did This Get Made? And I used to love it when I would come across somebody would send me a link on Twitter. I'd be like, watch this. And they they had animated a conversation. Yep. And I thought, not only is that very clever and funny, but 
that just shows a true affection for the material. You're just creating something for the podcasters that they will like. Uh, it, it's really very flattering. So thank you, Sam. Thank you to everybody who supports the show. Let's move on because we're about to start January of 1983 with one of the most memorable, noteworthy, astonishing has this ever happened where we've the first film that we've talked about for the year was the best picture winner? It's called Wacko. Ladies and gentlemen, an important announcement from Academy Award winning actor, Mr. George Kennedy. One very serious point. Lawnmowers do not kill people. People kill people. <laughs> I told you this is not a toy. Oh, there was a phone message for you. Oh, wow. From Norman? Oh, wow. He didn't say. Oh, come on, Mom. What did he say? Well, at first he goes, uh, your daughter's gonna die tonight. At last, the motion picture made by, for, and about people just like you and me. All I got to say about the movie called Wacko, I sat down with some silly tobacco, couldn't make it 20 minutes. Then I got, damn, I, I blew it. Uh, <laughs> it's unwatchable. Drew, off the top of your head, can you recite any of the broad horror comedies that we've covered thus far? Oh, sure. We've already done Student Bodies and we've already done Saturday the 14th. And clearly there is a trend going on as people tried to crack this. Uh, we also did Pandemonium. And class reunion. Yes, we did. You know, I do have an absurd affection for student bodies, but one common thread among these films is that they are atrocious. They're <laughs> atrocious. We're both goofball horror fans. It shouldn't be a hard sell for us to get behind a horror comedy spoof, but they're just so mercilessly terrible. Well, look, even by the admittedly terrible standard set by the subgenre that we're talking about this movie is reprehensible the film is a running joke about george kennedy wanting to have sex with his daughter that is so grotesque and played at such a deranged level and poor julia duffy as his daughter is just stranded playing this you know george kennedy had to apologize after every take there's no way he didn't feel like shit playing that stuff george kennedy and Joe Don Baker, and now you got visions of mystery science theater magic in your head, because when those guys tried to play it straight in really bad movies, the result was often funny. Mitchell, that's funny. When they try to be ultra broad, it's painful. We've talked about this, and you, you were right. William Shatner was kind of a gift to the makers of Airplane 2 because they had tried it with several guys over the course of that film. Chuck Connor is a brick wall and not funny at all. And then you get lucky and Shatner comes in and, oh, my God, he's funny. And that's a discovery. Joe Don Baker, not funny, not a comic actor. And this movie would require if you're going to try and navigate material this shitty and you're going to try and find whatever the joke is in there. You've really got to be an adept comic performer to begin with. It's a ostensibly a, a satire of slasher movies about a killer called the lawnmower killer. It has kind of the structure of prom night, of course, because that's simplistic and, and easy. It really is just an excuse or a uh, clothesline on which to hang. Oh, look, a reference to the omen. Oh, look, a reference to the exorcist. Oh, look, a reference to Rosemary's baby. You know, most horror geeks would say that sounds fun until you watch it. That's it. The reference is all there is. It's really terrible. But Drew, did you notice who wrote this movie? No, I did not. Please tell me. It's going to make me cry, isn't it? No, it has one of the most bizarrely. Okay, first off, Dana Olson. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Also wrote The Burbs, wrote uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, is a very, he wrote a lot of television, a very funny writer, Dana Olson. Also, Jim Kalf, who you might not know by name, but he wrote some movies that we're going to get to soon that are pretty great. He did write The Boogans. Wow. He also wrote Up the Creek. He wrote Stakeout, The Hidden, Disorganized Crime. Good screenwriter. The uh, third one is Michael Spound, who I'd never done anything else. But the fourth one, Drew, David Greenwalt. Really? David Greenwalt is a co-writer on Wacko. You know what? We all start somewhere. Dude, on my MDB page, I'm going to do this so that nobody else does it. My MDB page, yes, you will find a listing for Fart the movie wow you know we all get 
early jobs that we are not necessarily delighted by. But wow, wow, that is an unbelievable murderer's row of people to have worked on a movie that is this relentlessly unfunny. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. There's like one or two more. There, yeah, not many. Hysterical is still ahead. There's a Saturday the 14th sequel coming. Yeah, but that's not that didn't play in theater. So, oh, thank God. Thank God. That thing literally looks like children made it. Uh, there's no other way to say it. And, and you mentioned Julia Duffy, who most people will know from Newhart in which she shines and is hilarious in Newhart, even when the show had its dips, she was always one of the highlights. And Andrew Dice Clay. I know. And this is, he's talked before about how a lot of his act, his early act, was just him doing impressions of people. And this is him leaning on the Travolta thing. And he's still young enough, and he was never thin. Dice was never a guy who was lean and lanky the way Travolta was. He was always a side of beef who was trying to keep it together. And so, like, watching him do his Travolta here, it is as aggressive an impression as I've ever seen in a film where it's not acknowledged. If somebody like good writers and a good director had made a Saturday Night Fever satire back then, he would have been really good. Well, and that would have been his claim to fame as the guy that was Travolta-esque that got discovered doing that. And I'm sure like when he did this, that that's what he thought was, oh, my God, people are going to see this. This is going to be the breakthrough. This is it. Man, he was around for a long time. Remember, this is a full decade before... Ford Fairlane. So good. Yeah, so thank you, Graydon Clark. He uh, gave us without warning. He gave us joysticks, <sighs> which we'll get to soon. But before that, he did wacko. God, we're only two months away from joysticks. This guy was busy in 83. Oh, Lord. Uh, you know who else was a machine, Scott? Charles B. Pierce. An unbelievable machine. And yes, one of the many, many movies that he churned out was our next film, Sacred Ground. Genre fans will know Charles Pierce from The Evictors. Town that dreaded sundown and the Boggy Creek movies. Uh, this is a dry, low budget Oregon shot western where a white trapper and his Apache wife unknowingly build a house on holy prairie ground and live to regret it. And how? Not knowing how this movie came together, here's how I imagine it went. He heard the real story and went, oh, or, and heard about like the land and about everything the land had gone through. And he was like, oh, I got to make a movie about that. And there is a definite earnest sense of indignation that drives this movie. Good intentions don't always make great movies. The problem is this movie feels like, and we've talked about these movies a lot, but it feels like one of those Sun Classics films. There is something about the way Pierce directs scenes where they just kind of start and stop bluntly, and it all feels like he just scotch tape scenes together. Yeah, and a lot of it feels like it's framed for television anyway. I know it's not everybody has this in them, and I know not every filmmaker wants the same thing from movies, but there's no elegance at all to what he's doing and that sort of thumping literalness kind of drives me crazy after a while watching a movie where it feels like you're watching a rough assemblage that nobody's done any of the fine tuning to that makes it a movie mm, that's a good point it is you know narratively very choppy it's gorgeous to look at also holy shit did that bear eat a horse that wow that is them that is some uh, some arcane stuff. I didn't understand what, what was going on there. That was crazy at the beginning of the movie. It looks like they just let a bear eat a horse. And I'm not entirely sure. I don't believe he had the budget to have Carlos Rimbaldi come in and make a real fake horse that looked that good and then get the bear to eat the fake horse. It just looks like they had a horse and they let the bear eat it. It's insane. A Western. Oh, my God. I love Westerns. I the whole reason that I raise horses is because I love Westerns. Um, We're going to feed a bear a horse to a bear. We need your oldest horse to shut up. I'm sorry. Wait a minute. You're going to do what? (laughs) You're going to do what to a where? I think that's Um, the conversation that Charles B. Pierce definitely had at one point in his life. Well, it's crazy because as a bear phobe, as somebody and I'm I am so shit scared of bears. It's ridiculous. That opening scene is the only time in the entire movie that there's like a pulse to the filmmaking when the bear's just chasing the actor. And it looks like Charles B. Pierce just pushed her out and goes, "Okay, run. And then they just let the bear go. Um, Nothing about that felt safe. And then it eats a horse. So, yeah, we have to do a 70s all over flashback. Back the calendar and keep on trucking. It's the 70s all over. True? 
Yes. What do you think of the film Grizzly? I don't know because I wasn't able to open my eyes uh, the entire time it was playing. Really? You've never seen in Grizzly in its entirety? I have. Grizzly, I saw young enough that it was, like many movies, just kind of generally scary. The sleeping bag scene, I bet. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but when you go see Annihilation, that movie has the bear to end all bears. So that's all you need to know. Bears are coming. Okay, we're back in the 80s. Um, We now go live to Drew McWeeney with a special report about an obscure film you've never heard of called Goodbye, Cruel World. Yeah, this movie's poster is a hand coming out of a toilet and trying to flush the toilet. 100 fucking percent appropriate. This movie is the worst. There is a reason that it is impossible to find. Dick Sean, who is a gifted and bizarre comedian, has never looked more embarrassed to be on screen, and I don't blame him. This movie is forgettable, and so we are going to do it the courtesy of forgetting it and moving on to Stuck on You. This is a movie dedicated to young lovers everywhere. I'm cool, not a fool. I'm the best there is. When I walk down the street, nobody else exists. If I'm at a party, that's the This is a movie about young kids in love. They're ups and they're downs. This is a movie about young love and its solemnity. Make me a drop, because when I break them open, you can hear them this is a movie about the first stirrings of youthful passion. Good night. This is a movie about kids who are just plain stuck on each other. Super glue. Yes, it's stuck on you. Now, the fact that stuck on you is better than Goodbye Cruel World says a lot about Sorry, Dick Sean. Stuck on You is a broad sex comedy, early from trauma, very much in the vein of Waitress and Squeeze Play. Uh, This one has a slightly more novel plot than those films in that we have a uh, couple that is on the rocks and they go to see a judge and the judge then treats them to a series of vignettes about troubled couples in the past, a la Cleopatra and Anthony, uh, Romeo and Juliet, Adam. Yeah, they try to go throughout all of history. This is a dumb movie. It is inept start to finish. It also might be the most watchable trauma movie. I mean, just for the fact that it jumps around from vignette to vignette makes it more interesting than Waitress. And and listening to that video that, that the guy did made me realize that what that bit that you did about Waitress is like, this is happening now. <laughs> There's a lot of that in this movie, too. It's they deliver jokes that way. It's stand in the middle of the screen and say punchline. Wow. Um, and you know what? It's I, I can't you can't even get upset looking at something like this. It's so um, let's go put on a show in the barn. At least this had higher aspirations. Squeeze play and waitress are basically what they sound like. Boob comedies. This at least, like Kaufman and hers, watched History of the World Part 1 and said, "Mm, let's try that. Let's try something like that. I totally would believe that. I would 100% buy that that's how this happened. Like, they went, we can do that for 38 cents. Nine credits for writing. It's a lot easier to give a credit than it is to cut a paycheck. So on these little movies, sometimes that's why you get those credits, man. It's like, well, you wrote the joke. Uh, How about a credit? Dude, all I have to say (laughs) is stuck on you, more like fuck on you. Oh, boy. Uh, this is... I, and also, Drew, <laughs> wait, can we get into this real quick before we move? Because this is a skimpy month. We got we got all the time in the world this week. Okay. Exclamation points in titles. Yes. I'm ready. I'm ready for this conversation because I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Unless you are Zucker, Abrams, and Zucker, don't put exclamation points in your title. Torah! 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 Is how that should be pronounced. Why does Stuck on You have to have an exclamation point? Why are you yelling this at someone? Yeah, and it does change the title. The title of the film is not Stuck on You. You're saying it wrong. The title of the film is Stuck on You! There's this insane need to punctuate some of the... It's like it makes them interesting when they're not. Waitress versus waitress! How about a question mark? Stuck on you? Why not an asterisk or an upside down... Yeah, but the question mark would make sense thematically because they're, you know, potentially breaking up. Stuck on you? Well, that's like uh, the Molly Ringwald film that we'll talk about later this decade for keeps. 
which has the question mark. Now we're going to move over to most people don't know this. And one of the cool things about 80s all over is that we bring you information that you probably didn't know before because of our deep research and our deep intellect. What we've discovered is that there was an original Independence Day and it doesn't have space aliens at all. Uh, it's a very weird remake. I got to say, Roland Emmerich lost his fucking mind. A small town is a hard place to have a big dream. And Mary Ann Taylor has lived here all her life. It's a place where nothing ever changes, except the dreams of those around her. Give it your best. Can't stay with a man like that. You just get up and walk out the door. Go where? Go Follow your dreams and do what you But Mary Ann's dreams are just beginning. Follow your dreams and do Independence Day. What you love to do. All right, that's my goofball cornball way of saying, in case you didn't know, there was a 1983 film called Independence Day. It is a low-key, earnest drama uh, about a young waitress played by Kathleen Quinlan, who, on one hand, desperately wants to leave her small town of Mercury, Texas, but on the other hand, finds that she has many uh, tethers that are keeping her there, including her mother and a new boyfriend and just kind of the fear of uh, branching out and uh, spreading your wings. I thought that I would be bored by this, but I wasn't. I, I like this one. It's unassuming. It's, it's quiet. It's, you know, it is just a straight soap opera drama character study, but it's well-made, well-written, and the cast, holy shit. Well, it was written by uh, Alice Hoffman, the novelist, and this was early in her career. This was one of her few original things that she's written directly for the screen, and I, you know, I think novelists don't always make the transition well because I think a lot of times novelists are focused on the micro or the internal or things like that and it's very hard sometimes to make that jump to film there's two different movies here there's the movie about Kathleen Quinlan that I wish I liked more because I love Kathleen Quinlan I like seeing a whole movie that's focused on her I think she's delightful but I think that the stronger movie and the more interesting film just in terms of the writing here is the subplot involving Diane Weist and her husband and even that's a little on the nose like when we drop into their lives, it's a very different film. And uh, Robert Mandel, the director of this, he's got one really big film coming up in this decade for him, I think. Um, but for the most part, this feels like a typical Mandel film. It's small. It doesn't all completely work, but there's stuff to like in it. And Like, I think in general, his strength was he liked actors, clearly. And Oh, yeah, this is an actor's movie. Yes. Thematically and story wise, you've seen this story in, in everything from, you know, uh, romance novels to basic TV. It's a, you know, but uh, I mean, what do we also have? David Keith. Yeah, David Keith is great. Francis Sternhagen is terrific as as the mom, you know, and she's one of those actors who you almost can't get her to play a false note. Richard Farnsworth. Yeah, Farnsworth is very good. Like, it's a well-cast small town and th there's a lot to like about it. It's just gentle and tiny and that's what its strengths are. I enjoyed it, and I probably won't remember much of it six months from now. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's a really hard film to track down. It is largely forgotten, I think, at this point. And it really is a shame that that title has become so wildly eclipsed by the other thing, because there's the Richard Ford novel and there's this film. It, it had been around for a while. I think it was evocative here. It's definitely you hear it now, and it means something totally different forever. Welcome to Earth. So uh, by this point, it feels like they've just decided to get every Fassbender film off the shelves, stuff that didn't even make it to America originally. The reason is pretty clear. Yeah. You know, a part of the reason that all this stuff didn't make it the first time is because he worked so much. But this film came out in 1977 in Germany, and this is uh, one of the four films he released that year because he was a beast who worked nonstop. Did you watch the 118-minute theatrical cut or the three-hour 20 television version? No, I've only ever seen the theatrical cut of this one, and uh, I'm not sure I would ever want to go back and, and see the longer version. I get that this... I don't like this film's style. I have some questions because I freely admit that I'm going to dig back further once we're done with this podcast because it's hard to watch anything other than our movies. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> because there are many, many good Fastbinder films I've never seen, but I don't think he speaks to me. I don't get it and i'm watching as much as i can of the station master's wife and i'm thinking he must have felt like lars von trier that's what he was in the late 70s yeah and and kind of like dogville wasn't ever meant to be a work of realism this is not a work of realism this is a small weird town where the station master is unaware that his wife is sleeping with lots of people and 
So he decides to sue people for talking about it. And there's this level of social satire that's being attempted. This is a film that's got 50 targets and never lands on one of them. That's kind of a problem of working so fast. Mike has this in his career. You know, you look at uh, Mike's films and especially that era where Mike was making 317 movies a year. One of them would be great. And like three or four of them would have two or three great scenes. And then nine or ten of them would be fucking terrible movies. And it's not that he's untalented. It's that they are moving so fast and you're working in rough draft almost. And a guy like Fassbender, he saw the end of his life coming. He saw that he wasn't going to be around forever. And I think there's a doomed, weird mortality to his filmmaking where you get the feeling that he was making movies as fast as he possibly could because he was terrified. And that's in the films as well. I I think he's one of those guys who even in a terrible movie like The Station Master's Wife, and I'll go so far as to say I think this is a terrible movie. Even in this, though, what you are getting is a fairly unfiltered look at him. Filmmakers that work this fast, the movies almost stop individually mattering, and it becomes this weird sort of nonstop dialogue that this person is just putting out. And I the remarkable thing is how many good movies popped out of this working method. All right, move on to a film not directed by Fassbender. No. It's The House on Sorority Row. <laughs> a certain kind of girl joins Pi Theta sorority. A girl who likes to party and likes to get close to her friends. A girl whose extracurricular activities were more daring than most. <laughs> then again, Pi Theta was different from other sororities. Because in this sorority, Nothing is off limits, as long as it's fun for the girls. So when it came time to say goodbye, they decided to make real sure that no one would ever forget the girls in the house on Sorority Row. Uh, There's some weird stuff in here, Scott. This is your very perfunctory plot of six sorority girls. Uh, inadvertently, thanks to a stupid, shitty prank, uh, kill their house mother and cover it up and then briefly feel guilt before they're all slashed to ribbons by an unsurprising stalker. Having said all that, (laughs) it's fairly watchable. I mean, it's slow, but it's fairly entertaining. Yeah, it's okay. It it is a down the middle slasher movie. It's not overly gory and it's not overly uh, uh, sanitized. And it gets really weird for about 10 minutes. Yeah, it does. It does. And I appreciate that it does kind of go wacko a couple of times. It feels like the filmmakers really liked Happy Birthday to me. I have said, let's make it a little bit quicker and a little bit bloodier. Maybe. Yeah, let's and let's not get quite as weird at the ending. Let's just play with the weird like because the whole thing where she starts to flash on things and that he's trying really hard to kind of do something a little different and a little more elevated. And uh, Not many people in the cast worthy of note, although I was happy to note a good performance from a young Harley Kozak before she went as Harley Jane Kozak. You would know her from Parenthood and uh, Harry and S- Harry Met Sally. My favorite part of this movie is that Drew texted me during the film and said his favorite line in the movie, which is what, Drew? Oh, my God. I forget now. Read me the text. I'm a sea pig. (laughs) Yes. Oh, that's insane. I'm a sea pig. (laughs) I'm a sea pig. That's easily the best scene in the movie. And it's the best scene because the payoff after the the ridiculous shoe leather they do for the setup is so anticlimactic that it's yeah, terrific. Yeah, we're not going to say, but if you watch The House on Sorority Road, just remember, I'm a sea pig. It's a funny moment. Yeah. And you know what? <laughs> I, I will say one thing, director Mark Rosman, enough with the obese men in tidy whities What are you doing? Somebody's got a fetish. Somebody's got a fetish. Oh, I know. I'm a sea pig. So, Scott, I know that you have a fondness for slasher films and horror films. I have a real fondness for movies about spies, and in particular, reality-based spies, not James Bondy spies. So how do you think I felt about our next movie? I'm going to say right off the bat that I would give a solid B- or even a B to Enigma. B is an East German defector returning to almost certain death. Why? 
There's a chief rat catcher around here. The Russian, whose trade is death, knows he is coming. How? You must be careful not to lure you into anything. They say the Russian who comes to Germany loses his head or his heart. The girl knows both of the men. She said they sent a KGB man from Moscow, especially for you. He's supposed to be the best. But none of the answers. Martin Sheen, Bridget Fossey, Sam Neill, a triangle that becomes a deadly conundrum. Enigma. I was really surprised by this one. I've never heard of it. Didn't even know it existed. And uh, to see a really sharp, clever little thriller starring Martin Sheen and Sam Neill in the early 80s. Dude, that was a treat. I remember the VHS cover, but when I was a kid, this stuff would have this whole premise would have bored me. But yeah, Martin Sheen is enlisted as a CIA agent. He's tasked to go into Berlin to um, retrieve an Enigma code machine. And there are twists and turns, uh, betrayals and backstabbings. A very good performance from Bridget Fossey, uh, an actress I don't know very well, but I was impressed with her here. Derek Jacoby, also always good. And what I found interesting about this one is that it's another decent movie from Jeannot's work, who did Jaws 2, and before this, he did Somewhere in Time. And uh, all right, after this, he would do Supergirl, but that was more of the Salkind's fault than his. So you look at this as the the follow-up to Somewhere in Time, and I think what, what makes sense is there's a really interesting love story here that is grown up in its idea that sometimes if you work in the world that these people work in, you're going to do things that you're not proud of or happy about but that's part of the work and if you're going to be with someone in that world you both have to make peace with that i like that stuff some dark turn i know exactly what you're talking about and there are some some interesting character turns in this movie and sam neill brings a layered performance he's not just blankly evil although he is evil yeah there's uh but he does have some interesting wrinkles that make the villain more interesting than he normally would be and martin sheen quite good i don't know if i necessarily buy him do in the action stuff because he's kind of a small now guy. i will point out the most ridiculous thing about this movie is that martin sheen is cast as a russian national who escaped and then is sent back in because he's the easiest to pass for russian what planet is it where martin sheen is the one that passes for russian most easily the only place that martin sheen could infiltrate is like wisconsin yeah just having him be a russian national made me laugh really hard it's a lot like having dudley moore running for congress in california yeah well there's also the uh you know the the idea of um sam neill playing a kgb agent i mean <laughs> But that's I love that tradition. I love the tradition that goes back to World War II, where if you had an English accent, you were a bad guy. Every Russian and German had an English accent in the war movies. That's kind of what we grew up with. If you tell me he's a Russian spy, I don't care if he has a British accent. The movie has told me he's Russian. So maybe in the world of this movie, he's speaking Russian. But now it's being translated for me because I'm watching the film. I don't that doesn't bother me if, you know, Sam Neill's playing a Russian. Doesn't he play a Russian in Hunt for Red October also? Yeah. We will be pushing Sam Neill as often as possible whenever he pops up in anything. I think Sam Neill is one of my favorite actors ever. He's never not good. And uh, even in stuff like this, which could be dry, he makes it interesting. And he's a delight on social media as a farmer and a crank. I uh, I'm delighted by him. <laughs> you know what? I'm not delighted by Drew. Oh, boy. I'm I'm going to guess. Can I can I guess? Can I go out on a limb? Can I guess? Treasure of the Four Crowns. You've seen Raiders. Star Wars, Aliens, and Close Encounters. But you are about to experience a totally new dimension in entertainment. Forged from the wealth of kings, source of the magical powers of good and evil, unleashed in the hands of a madman. Now, five daring heroes defy the odds in a deadly quest to capture the greatest prize of them all. Go for it. Treasure of the Four Crowns. A couple of uh, Patreon bonus episodes ago, uh, I had my friend Bill Roseman on, my childhood buddy. And this is one of the movies that I remember seeing with him. And we went and saw it at this, the theater that we would go to a lot. It was a eightplex and... When we went to go see this thing, I remember being so excited. It was 3D, and we had tried to go see Coming At You. I had seen it with my mom, and she had walked out because she was so offended by it. I knew it was the same guys. I was super excited. We walked out of this one 
just two 13-year-old kids walked out because we were bored silly by a adventure movie in 3D. That's work, man. This is a laughable Raiders knockoff. So far in our podcast, we've covered Coming At You. And then in 82, we covered Friday the 13th Part 3 as well as Parasite. I believe those are the only 3D films we've covered. So put those three aside because 1983 is when the fucking boom drops on 3D. Here it comes. There were a couple after 83, but the large majority of these movies came out this year. And this is easily one of the worst. I remember seeing this as a kid. Don't remember anything about it. Have not seen it again since last week. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking, how did I not remember this as one of the whack jobbiest movies I have ever seen? It has some of the worst, proudly awful special effects, like awful special effects that they linger on. These guys are shameless. And I I honestly think that as soon as they got hold of three, by the way, can we just make it? From now on, in honor of all of the movies coming out this year, can we make it 1983D whenever these come up? 1983D! Let me me just tell you, take it from me. This is some of the worst crap you will ever see. It doesn't even matter that it's in 3D. It's... Yeah, it's it's incoherent. Just the idea that there are three crowns in the treasure of the four crowns. Well, they make reference to the fourth crown. Stop it. I know it was destroyed, but that's a that's a really weird choice to just have. You know what, though? The movie is about the treasure of the four (laughs) crowns. Don't nitpick when. All right. But here's the thing. And and I think before we move on, Drew will agree with me. If you happen to have six bong hits nearby, you could do worse than to watch this movie with six bong hits. You will marvel at how incredibly weird the choices are in the film and how blatant some of the ripoff stuff is so i mean it's not just the premise and the the adventure swagger i mean some set pieces are literally uh, it's insane and for a pg this is surprisingly gritty like it feels like it should not be a pg i'm frankly amazed that they got one it feels much closer to coming at you than i remembered it feeling i would like some of our favorite bad movie podcasts to take a look at this one I'm thinking of three great podcasts that cover bad movies, and I don't think any of them have ever covered this film. And I would love to hear those podcasts cover Treasure of the Four Crowns. And it has an Ennio Morricone score because Ennio Morricone would score anything. And this is proof like this is amazing that his music is on this thing. And it's the version where he goes, yeah, yeah, I'll score your movie. And he's got that file full of stuff that he just kind of throws into films. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, we're moving on. Drew mentioned that one of his favorite things is discovering little known uh, obscure spy movies. And I think he'd agree that one of the cool side effects of doing the podcast is discovering obscure little Westerns as well. It is true. And especially this kind of end of the West Western. I like those. And I think this is a very solid, very Canadian example called Harry Tracy, The Last of the Wild Bunch. My love for you is as wild and true the wind or the sea On winter nights so bleak and cold It always will remain On summer eves when the breeze Whispers your name Like a star on a disc of the sea also known as Harry Tracy and Harry Tracy Desperado. If you're digging it up, all you need to know is it's the movie in which the amazing Bruce Dern plays Harry Tracy, the last remaining survivor of the Wild Bunch. And he's kind of an escape artist. Like his real gift is he can get out of jail. And there's a lot of that in this movie. There's a lot of really clever ways he sort of slips the bonds. And there is a relationship between him and a U.S. Marshal. And for me, the real discovery of this movie and the what the hell am i looking at is the u.s marshal played by gordon lightfoot canadian folk singer gordon lightfoot and he's not bad he's pretty good (laughs) he's it's it's one of those performances where i had to go look and see who it was and it's kind of a shock to the system you're like oh oh okay that's gordon i don't know that i knew what he looked like before this Yeah, i mean like you could see you know a guy of his stature being like oh other singers are trying it why not why not me and he's actually pretty good Bruce Dern, great. Uh, William A. Graham, not all that 
gifted as a visual director. This guy made a lot of crap. He made he. There's a movie of his that I always hold as an example of Hollywood when they just uh, somebody should have said no to somebody. It's the uh, the Mary Tyler Moore Elvis Presley movie where he's the rock singer who's in love with a nun called Change of Habit. Oh, Change of Habit. Oh yeah, that's this guy. This is full of cliches. It's got train heists, jail breaks, bank robberies. It's all basic Western stuff, but it's really made better because Bruce Dern is always watchable. And there's also a solid supporting performance by Helen Shaver as the, the woman he is trying to escape to. And I kind of like the relationship between him and the artist played by Michael C. Gwynn. Yeah, his reluctant at first reluctant sidekick. Yeah, it reminded me of Barbarossa, although I think Barbarossa is the better version of this. Yeah, yeah, much better. But I, I don't know if I love the tone. It almost seems to be going for like laughs at a lot. Well, of It's points. definitely more comedy. And did you catch who co-produced it? Sid and Marty Croft. That to me kind of it's that weird collision between sort of the earnest Canadian drama and uh, the Sid and Marty Croft version of this. And so it's somewhere in there is this movie. Now, we are moving on to a movie that I would say is probably one of the. OK, I'm going to go ahead and say it. This is the best movie we're going to talk about this month. Without question. And the movie is, Scott? A John Sayles film I had never seen before called Leanna. Really? You'd never seen this one? No, dude. I mean, there are like two or three movies that I have now left. I consider myself a massive John Sayles fan, not only because he started out writing Alligator, Piranha, Battle Beyond the Stars, and then branched out to make exactly the kind of movies he wants to make. I, that's, I respect John Sayles eminently for that. But on top of that, most of his art, really speaks to me a lot. Wait till we get to Eight Men Out. I might cry. This is a very heartfelt and, and sincere romantic drama about a woman who's coming to terms with the fact that she is gay and did not realize it. And it's better than all of the uh, lesbian-oriented films that we covered in 1982. It's better than Personal Best. It's better than uh, uh, Making Love uh, because it seems like John Sayles actually knows this woman. It's somebody he likes and it's not just a template of a lesbian that he's writing about yeah there's a lot that this does well and it's funny that we just talked about alice hoffman making the jump as a novelist to writing a screenplay this very much feels like a novel that has been adapted to, to a film because he has a novelist's eye he is very good at little the little micro details that make this world interesting i love the way it captures campus life uh she's married to professor he's kind of fucking around there's a lot of feeling on campus like that's okay and even kind of that's how they met she was a student and so there's there's this weird sort of sexual energy on campus to begin with and one of my very favorite things about the movie is how upset he is not that she cheated but that it was with a woman and watching the hypocrisy of that and how immediately that's the end of a marriage. It's not the cheating that bothered him. It was the, oh, well, but the, you're you're wrong. And he's clearly cheating on her. Oh, uh, nonstop. The politics of it are, hey, um, you were one of my students that I slept with a while ago. So kind of like, do you, do you expect me to stop doing that? He's a shitty guy, but in a realistic way. So I also really love that it's grounded in the economic world that I recognize. Like, this is a movie that is people living a very real lifestyle. I recognize this world. And I think that is something that before this, I hadn't seen a lot of in, in filmmaking. I, I did not see Leanna theatrically, but I saw it a couple of years later. And I saw it with my aunt, who had just maybe two or three months before come out as gay to me to the family she'd done it a little earlier but i was finally old enough that they had the conversation with me this movie was a huge part of us being able to have that dialogue in a way that i could understand emotionally stuff that i didn't even totally get about straight relationships yet uh it's a great lead performance by linda griffiths uh unfortunately she she died very young she passed away from breast cancer but she's great in this it's a fantastic performance all the performances are good and again kind of like Independence Day, I thought, oh, this is just, you know, a quiet, low-key indie drama. Um, I hope I can watch it in one sitting without nodding off because sometimes quiet movies bore me. I was into it entirely and I watched it in one sitting, which is like, yay, I'm a big boy. I watched it in one sitting. How smart is the choice that that isn't the happy ending of the movie? Like, it's not, okay, she leaves her husband and then she goes and she's with the woman and everything's great. The movie is about her her journey, her you know, her path through this. It's not, oh, will she get the person she wants and have a big happy ending? It's about the journey. And 
I think it's an important American independent film. I think it is significant just in terms of uh, watching sales write this this kind of film that nobody else was making. And I, I feel like what we're going to see as independent cinema emerges in the 80s is going to be very exciting. And I, that's one of my favorite things we're going to be talking about is the way indie cinema kind of struggled toward defining itself. Sales was an early beacon who was saying, we can tell stories about real people our way. It doesn't have to be any bigger than that. And we can get them into theaters the same way. I, You cannot overstate how important Leanna was. Like, it's a terrific and on top of important, still eminently watchable and enjoyable. So yeah, check that one out. And now we move on to a another surprisingly entertaining musical. This one from Australia, and it's called Starstruck. From the director of my brilliant career, a totally new kind of Australian film. Last night at the Lizard Lounge, Jackie blew the roof off. What with? Hot air? Star quality, Aunt Pearl. Star quality. My cousin Angus, he's reading this book, Sex Psychology, and he reckons guitars are like phallic symbols. And guitarists masturbate for a living. She got body, she's got soul. Starstruck, an Australian musical comedy. I am a fan of this movie. Uh, I liked it too, dude. It's very old, very old fashioned, very let's put on a show and save the local pub from financial ruin. And it's very uh, with Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, you know, very much that. One of the films that we didn't uh, cover in the first few episodes of the podcast that uh, was a late in America release was My Brilliant Career by Jillian Armstrong. And that film was huge for her. It put her on the map. As a filmmaker, it put Judy Davis on the map, put Sam Neill on the map. This was the follow-up. And one of the weird mysteries of the 80s for me is why this didn't work, why it didn't catch on here, because it feels like a classic 80s teen film that should have played exactly the same for American audiences, but just didn't for some reason. It's corny, dated, but it's sincere, and it feels a bit like they said, we love Greece. Why don't we make a movie like Greece? And that's what it feels like, but not in the 50s. I love I love the whole 60s vibe of the film. I think uh, Ross O'Donovan, who plays Angus, her cousin, uh, who's her manager, I think that's a terrific performance. But, dude, I cannot say enough about how much I love Joe Kennedy in this movie as as the lead. It's such a big performance and it is such an engaging movie and and so much fun and it was a huge film in australia it was huge it it was a big box office hit so it arrived here with some hype it arrived after another hit i really don't get it and it's going to be one of those things where when a movie works this well when a movie this was you know when australian cinema had kind of become a thing in american box office it feels like this should have been one of the ones that connected, but I didn't see it in 1982. I didn't see it until years later on video. And when I did finally see it, I fell for it head over heels. Like I love this movie and it's mystifying. Sometimes I fell into the vibe of this movie right away and I, I liked it very much. Yeah, it's you know, the, the music in it is it feels to me like it's early 80s new wave, but it's also done through a 60s sort of feel there's some uh, songs by tim finn from split ends uh there's terrific choreography and gigantic musical numbers there's a tightrope walk in a nude suit that you have to see to believe really this is one of the ones that i want to aggressively encourage you make the effort track it down it is not easy to find right now but it's worth your time you know it's not worth your time <laughs> no I, uh, you know what that's not fair let's back up what is worth your time but you might not feel good about how you spent it. Uh, yeah. Picture a um, like an obscure one issue comic book that came out in like 1983. And y- you've heard about it all these years. And it's just like this dark, nasty. Forget this whole metaphor. That's extra. <laughs> Tony's father has been away a long time. Why did you come back? I came back for you, Extro. 
bearing black magic from outer space. His mission, to avenge, to possess, to destroy. Extro. Some extraterrestrials aren't friendly. From New Line Cinema, rated R. As if in response to E.T., correct? If E.T. had been a sexual offender. All right. I love the, the idea that E.T. was this giant hit because it was about a friendly alien. And now the British horror industry is going to bang out an E.T. inspired horror film in which the alien is not friendly. OK, great. Extro is one fucked up acid trip of a movie. It is insane. If you don't like horror movies, never watch this movie because you will be sickened. If you do like horror movies, the fact that it's mostly pretty terrible should not dissuade you. From watching this movie. It has some of the nastiest, gooeyest bladder splatter effects you will ever see. We covered these last year with Scanners and some other films. This might be the bladderiest movie ever, correct? I'm glad that we're starting with the makeup stuff because that is what I knew about Extro. Extro was a movie that Fangoria fucking loved that I didn't see. But I remember images from it because of Fangoria, including the backwards walking alien and some of the transformation stuff and some of the worm stuff. This movie was a discovery for me. This director is a criminal. I'm fairly sure Uh, (laughs) it is a CD movie. It's inventive. I'll give him that. He tries some big special effects there. Okay. There was a conversation that we had when we were making uh, pro-life with uh, Carpenter. And in that film, there's a, a birth late in the movie where somebody has been having a, pregnancy that's grown incredibly fast in her over almost overnight and she finally goes to give birth and before we shot it john pulled us aside and he says all right fellas i gotta ask you a question what the fuck am i looking at we're like you know the birth and he's like i know but i'm not pointing directly between the legs right we're like no of course not and he's like because that's rated x you can't do that yeah the director of extra didn't get that fucking memo because he points directly between the legs and a dude crawls out there's a scene in this that is maybe one of the grossest bladder one of the bladderiest bladder moments of all time yeah a woman gives birth to a fully grown man that's all you need to know and it is not pretty the film has some really cool monster effects. Uh, lots of um, what's that goop? Like what? what is goop? Just goop. It's goopy. There's stuff like eating snake eggs. that's just nasty to be nasty. And oh, yeah. You, you almost have to admire the fact that they go for it unrelentingly. Let me now cite the late, great Roger Ebert, who gave this movie one star. I'm going to just read it. <laughs> Most exploitation movies are bad, but not necessarily painful to watch. They may be incompetent, they may be predictable, they may be badly acted or awkwardly directed, but at some level the filmmakers are enjoying themselves and at least trying to entertain an audience. Extro is an exception, a completely depressing, nihilistic film, an exercise in sadness. Wow. I would say that it feels like a crazy person is screaming the plot of Poltergeist, E.T., and Alien at you while chasing you around with a diaper that he filled. <laughs> it is... Oh, man, it's fucking crazy. And... <laughs> uh, I, I rarely will I break out the phrase guilty pleasure because I know this is a bad film in many ways. Like, the plot makes no sense. It's the father gets abducted by aliens, and then three years later, he comes back, and then just all sorts of bizarre, disturbing things start happening. What kind of memory do you think the kid has of this production what was the afternoon like when he's putting the worms in the babysitter what was that day on set like and what were the conversations between takes all right david that was pretty good what i'd like you to do is blow the worms under her skin more aggressively so that they can it's it's an unbelievable there's some visuals in this movie that make no sense yet are legitimately creepy and the whole thing that happens inside the house feels like the uh twilight zone episode It's a good life. There's a house that the kid lives in where everything in the house starts to become this psycho version of the inside of his head. You've got like clown toys walking around and this movie is so deranged in so many ways. None of it adds up yet. At the end of it, I did feel like I got a big meal of crazy. And there is some part of that that I have to value because it is sincerely crazy. You can't pretend to this kind of crazy. Yeah, it's ugly. It is nihilistic. It is in many ways a bad film. But 
as a huge fan of pulpy horror and sci-fi. I am frequently disappointed when I finally track down a movie after years and years of just Fangoria pictures in my head. This and Maniac both more than lived up to what the pictures initially promised. So hats off, folks. I have been informed that there are two sequels to Extro. I have not seen either of them. Uh, but if uh, you have the chutzpah to sit down and watch Extro, Drew and I would love to hear from you on Twitter. Uh, I am Scott E. Weinberg. I'm Drew McQueenie. And... Uh, that's the end of January 83. We promise February is much better. Oh, my God, dude. Next time we've got Bukowski. We've got Judd Hirsch. We've got John Voight trying to get into that weird Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, who's worth with kids contest. We've got the Rolling Stones. We've got Vem Vender. That's just the tip of the iceberg. We have David Cronenberg, Martin Scorsese, Hal Ashby, more singing pirates, Harold Pinter and the ghost of Sigmund Freud. How the hell are you not already listening to February of 1983? <laughs> gotta give it to them man they just jump right in on this movie there are no logos there's no nothing it's just a girl screams and then there's co-eds and wet t-shirts pow Pow! are you saying pow what are you saying hell night (laughs) college uh fraternity pledges are sent to a creepy mansion they have to spend the night in order to make it into their fraternity but of course several of the fraternity brothers and their girlfriends are there to uh, play pranks and make trouble why does anybody in a fraternity or sorority ever play a prank ever? Dude, let me tell you something. I was in a fraternity and we wouldn't have left our house for something like this. We would have just <laughs> like what so much effort for college kids. But, what? But our version of pranks were we had a giant slingshot on the roof of our dorm that we would shoot pork and beans to- across the quad. But that that's the closest. We didn't do elaborate like haunted houses with dead bodies and things. You saw Hell, Hell Night as a kid, I'm sure, right? I did. Okay. What horror film would you pair it with right off the top of your head? Uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, the Private Eyes? You were wrong. The Fun House. That's a very fair comparison. And here's the thing. But like The Fun House, this is, it's big budget enough that it looks like a real movie. Like, it's well made enough to be a real movie, but it's still kind of creaky. And it, it I, I, man, Linda Blair is so uncomfortable as a screen icon lead, and they're trying to turn her into a, a screen queen, clearly in this movie. Not and, to be unkind, but she's not a good actor. Not a good not a good actor and not comfortable doing it. Like clearly it wasn't it wasn't what she wanted to be doing, but it was where they were willing to use her. And so I feel like she's so uneasy on screen. And then you've got guys like Peter Barton who looks like a Disney prince, and you got Vincent oh, Van Patten. Yeah, in, in in fairness to Linda Blair, Van Patten is no freaking Olivier either. And he's doing Billy Zobka before there's a Billy Zobka. Like, I thought it was. It's an early 80s movie, but it is a very 80s movie. It's got some good atmosphere. The Some of the production design, the actual house itself is fairly creepy. Once they go in, though, man, does things slow down for a while. Yeah, it slows down to a crawl. And while it does get a couple of good jolts between, you know, to acts two and three, doesn't really hold up to my memories. I remembered it being a lot juicier and a lot more colorful. I'll give him this truth in advertising with that poster because that gate is the focus of the movie. I've never seen a movie more obsessed with a gate. They spend a lot of time on that gate. It does go for a little more suspense than just gore. If you want to see like, you know, five idiots trapped in a house and, and slowly get killed, then you could do worse than Hell Knight. Now, there is one thing that I think is noteworthy about this movie, and that is the weird mystery of the identity of the two killers. Because they are like the 80s movie 
slasher movie version of Max Shrek. I've always loved it with Nosferatu, the original, the silent one, that there is really nothing known about Max Shrek and that it's clearly a fake name and that that dude is so fucking weird that they ended up making an entire movie about how he was probably just really a vampire. There's no identification for the two guys who play the killers in this. There's no credit for them. They've never been identified anywhere. I like just imagining that they were actual psychos who showed up on set, didn't know there was a movie going on, and then just trundled off the back of the set. And I think if they ever make a real sequel, it should be about those two guys who are just still out there and they think Hell Knight's still going on. One interesting thing, the the gentleman who wrote this film, uh, Randy Feldman, would write nothing else throughout the 80s until 1989 when he would grace us with the classic masterpiece, Tango and Cash. Scott, do you know who the production assistant on this film was? Who's that? Frank Darabont. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. We're going to get to Frank Darabont. He co-wrote The Blob. He co-wrote The Fly 2. And this is an early collision with Chuck Russell, who was an associate producer on this. That's probably where they met. I love Frank Darabont. I love seeing his name pop up in early stuff. If it has no other place in film history, it's that collision of Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont that, that makes Hell Knight special. So, so there you go, crybabies. Hell, Hell Knight! Knight. Wow!